I want to say good morning to those of you that are in the room with us this morning, as well as those that might be watching online. And I want to say a special thank you to Dr. Merritt uh, for giving me this awesome opportunity to continue uh, to work on my craft and to be able to uh, stand in front of you today and uh, to preach the Word of God. So if you have a Bible with you, copy of God's Word, uh, if you'll turn to the book of Romans, we're going to be in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, and I want to draw your attention to this idea of time, specifically to how much time you will spend on things throughout your lifetime. I ran across a study done by the Huffington Post uh, a couple of years ago, and they basically broke down what people actually spend their time on, and they broke it down in years of what they actually do. And what they found was the average person will live for about 79 years on earth. That's roughly about 28,835 days on earth. And so of those 79 years, they went and broke down on the specific activities of how we live our life in years. So here's what they found. We will spend 33 years in bed, 26 years of them sleeping, seven years trying to either wake up like me or get to sleep, 13 years and two months at work. That's roughly about 24% of your time over a 50-year working period. They found that you will spend 11 years and four months on your screen. That's about eight years worth of social media and TV consumption alone. They found that you will spend four years and six months eating. Some of us young guys on the staff, that's definitely gonna be much higher. Three years and one month celebrating holidays, traveling to destinations, or going to see family. One year and four months of exercising, we actually spend eight times longer on our screens than we do physically working out. One year and one month of romance or time spent with our significant other. One year and three days of socializing. And there are a couple of other minor things added in, commute times, cleanings, appointments, those types of things. But after all of this is said and done, the sad fact of the matter is, we only have about eight years and two months to actually live. So once we see how our time is allocated and we kind of put it into the proper perspective, it can be a little bit overwhelming and we're left trying to figure out what must we do with our time. And Romans chapter 13 is a piece of scripture that deals with this issue head on of how we manage our time and what we are supposed to do here on this earth. And so Paul is writing this letter from the city of Corinth and uh, to the church in Rome. It was a church that was experiencing a uh, relative time of peace, uh, for, for lack of a better term, but a church that Paul knew they needed a strong dose of gospel doctrine. So and he was in this city of Corinth that was very much like Rome. It was a hotbed of sexual immorality. It was a hotbed of sin. So Paul, while he is writing to Rome, he is experiencing some of the same things right where he is at. And so the big idea running through the book of Romans is that the gospel has the power to save all people. It's found in chapter one, verses 16 and 17. The gospel has the single power to save all people. And while Paul will tackle many, many issues in this book, our text today deals with the urgency and the timing of this gospel message. And so Paul's gonna use it, he often uses common and everyday metaphors to get his point across. And in our text today, he does this very same thing to drive home a critical spiritual lesson by using the imagery of taking off and putting on 
close. So let's look at the text. Let's read the, the word of God. It says this, starting in chapter 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So immediately after reading this text, you get the urgency of Paul's message. The tone is brief, it is abrupt. You get the feeling like, hey, let's put the Bible down and let's go do something. That's, that's kind of the, the, the feeling I got when I was first reading over this. And so what is Paul trying to convey here? What is it time for us to do? How must we make the most of the time that we have here on this earth? I think Paul lays it out beautifully. First, we have to wake up. Before we do anything else, we have to wake up. It's found in verse 11. It says, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. And so in the Greek language, there are two main words uh, that are used for time. The first word is chronos. This word refers to chronological time. Think of like a clock time or calendar, the, the kind of time that we are bound by. But the other word that's used for time in the Bible is known as kairos. Now, kairos is not necessarily a succession of minutes or calendar time or clock time. Kairos is more the moments that we have in life. They are the periods of opportunity that we have. Kairos is, is measured in terms of events or eras or seasons. In other words, kairos defines the best time to do something when the circumstances are most suitable in our life. And it's clear that in these verses, the Apostle Paul is haunted by two things. Number one, by the shortness of time. He says, hey, you know the time. He's making sure everybody's on the same page. You know how short life really is. Life is a vapor, the Bible says. But there was more to Paul's urgency here than just the shortness of time. You see, the apostle Paul expected the second coming of Christ. The early church expected it at any moment. And they had the urgency with which to be ready. Now, our job is not to know when Christ comes back because no one knows when he's going to return to claim his church. But it is our job to be ready. It is our job to live in the here and now and to live for Christ and be accomplishing his purposes in our heart and our life. So by using this one word, kairos, instead of chronos, Paul is urging and he's begging his readers, don't miss the moments. Don't miss the opportunities that God is going to give you in this short amount of time on this earth. But then Paul says another statement here. He says, well, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, this might seem like an obvious statement, like, duh, Paul, we know that. Like, I'm older now than when I was born. I should be more spiritually mature now than five, 10 years ago, right? But I don't think Paul is using this as a piece of new information. I think Paul is using this as a rhetoric and a way to call attention to his readers. Because Paul understands, if they truly know and are reminded that Jesus is coming back, they are going to anticipate it and be more committed to walk with God instead of sleepwalking with God. Now we're about to get real here for a moment. How many of you know someone who sleepwalks? Raise your hand. How many of you know somebody who sleepwalks? 
How many of you know somebody that sleep talks? Anybody that sleep talks in the room, okay? Let's see if, if you're really honest and really brave. How many of you yourself sleepwalk? Anybody? I'm in that camp. I'm with you. I am team sleepwalker, okay? And uh, needless to say, when my wife and I got married about two years ago, it was a big adjustment for her. to be walking around, opening some cabinets, you know. It kind of freaked her out to start. But I, that's, what, that's, a, that's a thing that, that I have to go through is that I'll go through these periods. I just sleepwalk. I don't know what's wrong with me. I might have some issues going on. That's what I do. And so it was a big adjustment for her. But I ran across a story about a teenage girl who could sleepwalk for nine miles. There's gonna be a picture of her on the screens. Back in October of 2015, she was found nine miles from her Colorado home with no money, no ID, no shoes, all while wearing her pajamas. Her dad woke up around 6 a.m. and reported her missing. They eventually found her near a local movie theater in the next town over. No one knows how she got there, if she actually walked the nine miles, if she somehow got on a bus and it took her there, or she got in a car and drove over there. Nobody really knows. But in an interview, after she was finally found, her dad said, yeah, this is not the first time this has happened. This has happened over and over and over. And I ran across this story and I thought, do you know when some people sleepwalk, they can actually appear awake? that their eyes can be open. They can even perform basic tasks such as walking up and down stairs. They can open doors and perform household chores. Scholars say that sleepwalking is a subconscious state in which they can actually look and appear awake. See, they can have their eyes open and perform these simple behaviors, yet they are fast asleep. In some cases, they've even actually gotten in a car and driven somewhere, operated machinery in some rare cases. And I ran across this story and I thought, wow. The sad fact of the matter is there are a lot of people in our churches today that are doing nothing more than sleepwalking their way through life. They have a comfortable job, they have a couple of kids, they try to do things right, yet they are just going through the motions of the Christian life. It might appear on the outside that they are following Jesus, but in all reality, on the inside, they are fast asleep. It's an issue in our day. It was an issue in the day of Paul, which is why Paul says, hey, before you get anything else I'm about to tell you, you have to wake up, recognize the moments and the opportunities that are around you. But then Paul continues his argument. Then he goes to verses 12 and 13 and he says, hey, you have to throw off. You have to throw off the works of darkness. Some translations might say cast off. Let's read it together. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So Paul is kind of rolling out this imagery here of taking off and putting on clothes. He continues this theme specifically of waking up. Like no one in their right mind wakes up, rolls out of bed, grabs their keys, and drives to work in the morning with the bed head, you know, going, hair going every which way. You don't brush your teeth. You want to make sure you look good. If you were to roll in and do what I just said, you'd probably either get sent back home to change or you might even get fired on the spot, right? Everybody, when they wake up, they have a routine. You know, some of us are like zombies trying to wake up. Some of you are like morning people and you want to have like a five-hour conversation when you wake up. Uh, Y'all people have problems, by the way. Uh, and so you, we all have a routine that we get into. You wake up, you take a shower, you brush your teeth, you fix your hair, you hopefully have a quiet time, you get the kids ready, you eat breakfast, you prepare for your day. There's a progression to what we do after we wake up. And Paul sees a similar type of progression 
in his own spiritual walk and in our spiritual lives as well. He says that when you wake up, you have to literally cast off. The idea is throw it as far as you can and put on the armor of life. This illustration here is like taking off and putting on clothes. That when you wake up in the morning, you dress appropriately to who you are and to what you plan to go and do. You don't roll out of bed and say, you know what, I'm gonna leave the pajamas on and I'm gonna put the work suit over it. I'm gonna see how this goes. I'm just gonna torture myself all day and burn up. Nobody does that. You take off your pajamas and you put on whatever work attire you are required to wear. But then Paul has a, a super, super serious moment here to where he gets specific about what we need to throw off. And there's kind of these six specific sins that he lists that are typical and are present in a Christless life. So I wanna, I wanna have your attention for just a moment as we walk through each of these so we can understand what Paul's trying to say. The first word here is the word orgies. It's the word cosmos in the original text. It's an interesting word. It was originally attached to a victor who would uh, go home after he won the games and these, this bunch of people, rowdy bunch of people would go home and they would sing his praises and celebrate him because he won. This word has kind of morphed over the years to become a noisy band of party goers who swept their way through the city streets at night that were basically a nuisance to others and were up to no good. He starts there. Then he goes to drunkenness. To the Greeks, drunkenness was a particularly disgraceful thing, even though this was a very much a wine-drinking people. Even some children drank wine, and, their, and their, I mean, the breakfast consisted of a slice of bread dipped in wine. It was all around them, yet it wasn't just for Christians that was shameful to be drunk. It was for everybody. Everyone in that culture was said, if you are drunk, it is a shame and it is a disgrace. That's the second thing Paul lists. Then he continues on, then he gets to this word sexual immorality. This literally translates as a bed that you cannot have, a forbidden bed. This word brings to mind people who have no set values when it comes to marriage. No set values for God's design and his purpose for one man and one woman in the marriage bed. But then he continues on and gets to this word sensuality. This might be the most graphic word that Paul could use. It's one of the ugliest words in the Greek language, and it not only describes immorality and sin and darkness, but it describes those who are lost to shame. Most people with a healthy conscience would at least try to conceal their evil deeds, would at least try to conceal their sin because they are ashamed of it. When he uses this word sensuality in the Greek language, he's saying they don't even care. They are so far gone, they don't care who sees what they do, who sees who they are, because they are so are lost. They don't care what people even think about them. Then he goes to the fifth word. This word is quarreling. Quarreling is the spirit that is born of uncontrolled and unholy desire. It comes from a desire for power, for place, and prestige, from the hatred of being better. It is essentially the sin which places yourself in the light, which is the exact opposite of Christian love. But then Paul winds it down, he uses one last word. It's the word jealousy. And this word is not necessarily bad. It can describe a noble attempt to emulate those who have great character. But depending on the context in the Bible, it can also take on a negative connotation. And here he describes the envy which grudges others for what they have and for their superiority. It describes a spirit which cannot be content with, and it looks on a jealous 
with a jealous eye on every single blessing that everyone else has. Paul says all of that perfectly describing what we as believers have to throw off these works of darkness. Which brings me to this quote from Charles Spurgeon, which sums it up perfectly. He says this, the rags of sin must come off if we put on Jesus. There must be a taking away of the love of sin. There must be a rejecting of the practices and habits of sin or else a man cannot be a Christian. It will be an idle attempt to try and wear religion as a sort of celestial over top of old sins. You see, what, what is Spurgeon getting at there? He's saying exactly this imagery of taking off your clothes and putting on Jesus Christ that the apostle Paul is using here, he is hitting on that exact thing, which begs the question, everybody in the room, if you're reading through this text, should ask, well, how do we throw off the works of darkness? How do we cast them off? It's found throughout the pages of the Bible in this word that we call repentance. Repentance is the act of turning away from our sin and turning to Christ. Look at Acts 2.38. At Pentecost, Peter instructs his people. He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We also see it again in 1 John 1.9, which says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, Paul understands this imagery and this metaphor of repentance. See, when we repent, it's not just a turning of our minds. It's not just a turning of our heart. When we repent and we confess our sin before a holy and a righteous God, it's a turning of our mindset, it's a turning of our eyes, it's a turning of our heart, it's a turning of our lifestyle. We were once going this way and we've now made a complete 180 and we are turning back to the Lord Jesus Christ who so graciously laid down his life for us. But the best part about this section right here, verses 12 and 13, is that this is not made possible by anything we can do, by a prayer we can pray, by our church attendance, by our giving records. That's not why this is made possible. It's made possible in what Christ has already done for us. See, Jesus can forgive our sins. He can cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. See, we believe here at Cross Point Church that Jesus Christ was, in fact, God's son, that Jesus Christ did, in fact, come to this earth, that he did, in fact, lay down his life. Uh, his body was beaten, spit upon, flesh was ripped. He was hung on the cross for us so that our sin could be placed upon him while he was on the cross, buried with Jesus when he went in the grave so that when he rose again on the third day, our sins could be forgiven forever. You see, if Jesus was just a good teacher, if Jesus was not the son of God, if Jesus was just a moral guy, we have no point in being here. Pack it up, go to the beach, let's go play golf. Let's do something else besides what we are doing today, besides living life out in a small group, besides giving to God's work. Because if Jesus was not who he said he was, we have no purpose. But because he was the son of God and he laid his life down, we can have hope and we can have life. But then Paul says one other thing. He says, don't just wake up, stop there. Don't just throw off the darkness, but he gets to the best part. And he says, when you throw off the darkness, now 
put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I like to think of it this way. It's kind of the, the second of two main steps that Paul is trying to explain. He's saying, step one, step two. Step one, step two. Put off, put on. Put off, put on. He sees this pattern of the way in which we do things. And he continues, once again, this imagery of the throwing off the things of darkness and putting on the things of Jesus. Because the way it's written in the original text is like, hey, do it now and do it effectively. He's saying, don't wait, don't hit the snooze button, don't do it tomorrow, get it done now and do it effectively. But additionally, in the voice that it's written in, in the Greek, basically suggests that the ball is in your court. Paul is saying, you, you yourself put Christ on. Do it now, don't wait. You, let's go do this thing is what Paul is saying. In other words, Paul is once again re-emphasizing God has already completed this on our behalf by sending Jesus to the earth. God is not up in heaven trying to force you to do this, but we are saved by grace through faith, which is why he gives us this command to throw off the darkness and to put on literally himself so we can do as Paul said and fight the good fight, to keep the faith, to finish the race. I think the best way I can illustrate this is by sharing a personal story. A couple of years ago in 2017, I was a, a sophomore in college and I just decided to spend part of my summer volunteering at a Christian summer camp uh, overseas in Belgium. And uh, it was kind of, kind of a last minute decision type of thing. And uh, I was excited to go and work with a bunch, of, a bunch of the kids over there, work with some awesome volunteers to get some life experience. And um, the, the cool perk about it was that on weekends, uh, when we didn't have any kids, we were free to go and travel throughout Europe and see all the different sites. I was pumped up, I was ready to go. Well, the problem was I thought the university was responsible for booking my flight. And the university thought that I was responsible for booking my flight. So I was about two and a half weeks out and I was like, uh-oh, I don't, I don't have a flight. I gotta get over there somehow. And uh, so I, I was, it went into full scramble mode and I was like, how in the world am I going to get from Canton, North Carolina to Brussels, Belgium with the money that I had fundraised on this short of notice? So when I say I literally, literally had to fly around the moon to get there, I did. I drove from Canton, North Carolina to Greenville, South Carolina. Flew from Greenville, South Carolina to Atlanta, Georgia. From Atlanta, Georgia to Washington, D.C. From Washington, D.C. to Boston, Massachusetts. From Boston, Massachusetts to Reykjavik, Iceland. From Reykjavik, Iceland to Brussels, Belgium. A day and a half. And the worst part about it, I had to fly with this airline called Wow Airlines. <laughs> just, just on the chance, has anybody ever flown on Wow Airlines? Put your hand down, please. That is not something we're proud about, okay? I, I got on that flight. It was like, think about like, like the elementary cafeteria, like trays. That was what I sat in. I got in that cabin and it smelled like sushi. I was like, I'm gonna throw up on this plane. And uh, I get, you know, I get to like, like the Iceland airport, the Reykjavik airport, and it, you know, I, I got like a fruit cup and a Sprite and it's like, you know, 1798. I'm like, this is, this is just fantastic. And so finally, I make it to Brussels, Belgium, like a day and a half of flying around. First time flying by myself. I had flown um, with, a, with, a, with a group before, but never by myself. So I get in the airport, and I had something that you've probably all experienced before. I go to the uh, baggage claim. They don't have my bag. Not a good feeling. And uh, so I'm like, well, I'm already late. The camp has basically already started at this point. And so I had to go, I got on the train, it made it to the campsite, and I was like, look, 
well, I'm gonna have to figure this out. And so I, the, the, the bad detail about all of this is that I was a rookie flyer, so I didn't pack an extra, extra change of clothes. So I, it, it's, it's also one of the hottest summers ever recorded in Belgium. It's about 95 plus every day. We're outside, we're rolling around with, with you know, we're, we're playing tackle football with the kids, we're, we're playing ultimate frisbee. It's hot, I'm sweating, it's dirty, it's nasty. And like one day goes by and I'm like, ugh, this is not good. Two days go by, no bag. I'm like, ah, this is disgusting. I'm like, I don't even wanna smell myself, you know? It's just, just disgusting. And so finally, I get in contact with Wow Airlines. The other problem about the Wow, I call Unwow Airlines, is that they don't track their bags. They don't have bag tags. I don't know why. And so they don't even know where the bag's at. So they've been calling people, trying to figure out, is it in this airport? No, is it in this airport? And so I had my, my dad, my uncle, I had like a whole army calling people. We need to get this guy's bags so he can go serve. And uh, so finally, this, this lady calls me, Mr. Lefford. I think we found your bag. I said, awesome, sweet. Can you identify some of the contents in the bag? I said, yes, ma'am. I said, it's got this pair of shorts, this shirt, this belt some other items. She said, we're sorry, Mr. Lever, this is not your bag. I said, okay, that's fine, it's okay. So the next day rolls around, I get a call, same lady, Mr. Lever, I think we found your bag. I said, sweet, I'm ready. Can you identify some of the contents in the bag? I said, sure. It's got this pair of shorts, this, this shirt, this belt, a couple other items. She said, Mr. Lever, it's not your bag. I said, okay. She calls me back again, can't make this up. She said, Mr. Lever, we think we found your bag. Instead, and instead of you identifying some of the contents, will you just tell me, I'm not making this up, is there a purple toilet seat in your bag? <laughs> I said, who do you think I am, lady? And so at the end of that conversation, I said, ma'am, I said, the Lord is trying to teach me patience right now. I understand that. And I'm gonna muster all of my energy to be as, as kind as I possibly can. I said, ma'am, I have a large gray dejuno D-E-J-U-N-O suitcase. And in that suitcase, I have this pair of shorts, this shirt, this hat. I listed off about 20 items that were in there. I said, ma'am, but there is one item that is making its way from Canton, North Carolina to Brussels, Belgium that I promise you no one else will have. And I said, ma'am, it's in the front zipper pocket. And if you think you found that suitcase, you unzip that pocket and you will find a five-pound bag of teriyaki Jack Link's beef jerky. I said, ma'am, until you find the beef jerky, which I would like to be enjoying right now, do not give me a call back. <laughs> yes, sir, Mr. Lefford. Thank you very much. Call me back about three hours later. We found your bag. I will never forget, y'all. I'll never forget hearing the bag being rolled to me. It was like Christmas. I'll never forget being able to unzip that bag and feel the soft clothes to smell my laundry detergent. And just like, I could put on fresh, clean clothes. Now stop right there with that image in your head. Imagine, I would have heard the suitcase rolling. I would have unzipped the bag, smelled the laundry detergent. Imagine in my spot if I would have said, no thanks, not for me. I'm gonna stick with the sweaty, dirty, nasty shirt and the shorts. I'm just gonna stick with it, I'm okay. Nobody, nobody in their right mind would do that. Why do I tell you that story? Why do I tell you about all of those details? Because the sad fact of the matter is, there are a lot of people in our churches today that are doing the exact same thing and saying, you know what? I don't want the suitcase. I don't want the new clothes. I'm gonna stay in my dirty, sweaty, 
filthy rags. See, the Bible is clear. It calls our works, our deeds, filthy rags in the eyes of God. Even on our best day, we can't measure up to who Jesus was. But the best part about the Jesus that we believe in, the best part about the Bible and the gospel message is that Jesus came to this earth and he went to the cross taking your sweaty, nasty, dirty, filthy rags that you've been wearing forever, you've been holding on to, and he put them on himself. Taking your sin, taking your filth, taking your regret, taking your shame and saying, I will take this burden. And the best part about Jesus is that when he comes, he says, let me unroll a new suitcase. It's got a fresh pair of clothes in it. Holy clothes, righteous clothes, stuff we don't even deserve. Yet through his sacrificial atoning death, Christ gives us a suitcase. He says, if you will believe in me, if you will trust in me, if you will confess your sins before me, you will have a suitcase that will never, ever end. Yet there are so many people that walk around and say, you know what? I don't want the suitcase. I'll stay in my rags. You do that in one of two ways. One, you reject Christ completely. Say, I don't want anything to do with him. You're lost. Or two, you might be a believer in the room, but you have sin in your life that you have not brought before the Lord. You have someone you have not forgiven in your life. You have a grudge you are still holding on to. And when we hold on to those things, when we sin and there's unconfessed sin in our life, we put them in our pocket and we say, God, don't touch these, this is mine. And we continue every single day to go to work, to go home, to do our classwork, you students, and to say, you know what? I'm gonna stay in my filthy, dirty rags because Jesus' death was not worth it. The sad fact of the matter is our churches are filled with people that are saying no to the suitcase, no to the fresh clothes that Jesus can give us and sticking with the world and its rags. The most tragic thing in the world would not be to find there is no God the most tragic thing in the world would be to find there is a God and not accept him. To find there is a fresh suitcase waiting for you and to never even unzip it. That is why at this point, at the end of verse 14, the apostle Paul is essentially standing up, screaming, put on Jesus Christ. Make no doubt, make no mistake about it. That's why Paul connects putting on Jesus with making no provision for the flesh. Either you will control your sin or your sin will control you. We either live in our rags and fight sin alone or we live with Christ and allow him to fight the fight for us. That's why this closed illustration of taking them off and putting them back on works so well. Because just as we take off and put on clothes daily, we need Jesus Christ daily in our hearts and in our lives. And I'll leave you with this quote. Jeremy Taylor says this, God hath given to man a short time here on earth, yet upon this short time, his eternity depends. We started off today talking about this idea of time. Time is ticking, time is flying by. Jesus doesn't measure our time with calendar time or clock time, but in the Kairos moments of our life, the opportunities that God will give us and it's time for each of us in the room today 
to wake up, throw off the darkness, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? We're all familiar with the term time, and we understand we don't have a whole lot of time on this earth. But for the next couple of moments, not gonna drag this out, I want you to examine your own heart. Examine your own life. There are some of you out here today, you need to realize you are doing nothing more than sleepwalking through life. Essentially wasting the life that God so preciously created. You're sleepwalking, you have no hope, you have no future. But it's my prayer, it's my hope that maybe for the first time today you recognize what Jesus Christ has done for you. Maybe you don't have a relationship with him and you recognize that your sin separates you from a holy and righteous God. Maybe there's one in the room today. Maybe there's one watching online today. And you say, Micah, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I want one today. If that's you, and you wanna experience the goodness of the new suitcase, would you pray something like this in your heart? Say, Lord Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. I admit I have sinned against you. Lord, but I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you came to this earth. I believe you were raised to life on the third day. And God, today, I place my faith, I place my trust in you. Forgive me of my sin. I repent. And God, I turn to you. And if that's you in the room, and you just prayed that prayer, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out your phone. I want you to either go to one of two options. Either go to crosspointchurch.com decision. That's crosspointchurch.com decision. Or simply text the word Jesus to 678-255-2566. Either go to crosspointchurch.com decision or text Jesus to 678-255-2566. You say, why do you want that? We would love nothing more than to connect with you, to celebrate with you about your newfound walk with Jesus Christ. Not gonna bombard you with texts, calls, or emails. We would love just to come alongside of you and to help you out in your walk with Christ. The next logical step is to be biblically baptized in believer's baptism, to show the church I am a committed follower of Jesus Christ and I am committed to this local body. Maybe that's you in the room today. Before you leave, if you'll go out those back doors, you'll see a place called Connection Point. We'll have uh, a few of our representatives at those tables. Talk to one of them, please, about what it means to be baptized. They will help connect you and explain what we believe about baptism. But maybe, just maybe, for the rest of us in the room today, Paul's words are clear. Maybe you've been keeping sin back in your life. Maybe you're not following. Maybe you're just sleepwalking through life. Today is the day. Time is short. Don't miss the moment. Don't miss the opportunities that God has so graciously given you. Paul's words are clear. We're only given a certain amount of time. Let's stop sleepwalking. Let's wake up, throw off, cast off the works of darkness, and let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ and live for him. It is time.